At this present time in the satsang, I am holding a series of discourses on the Bhagavad Gita. I am commenting the essential spiritual message transmitted by Krishna to his friend and disciple Arjuna, which is contained in the fundamental text of spirituality, the Bhagavad Gita. We are in chapter 5 and we start at the shloka, at the strophe number 11. Last time we ended, of course, with the strophe number 10. To connect with it, Krishna is now giving to Arjuna a bit of things to look forward to. He is giving him a model. He describes the essence of karma yoga. The chapter number 5 is called the yoga of renouncing the fruits of action. And that's the very definition of karma yoga. That's why this chapter is loaded with principles of karma yoga. And uh, shloka number 10 expresses synthetically, wonderfully, exactly what karma yoga requires. In the shloka number 10, in the strophe, in the verse at number 10, Krishna was telling, he who performs actions, offering them to Brahman and abandoning attachment, is not tainted by sin as a lotus leaf by water. He who performs actions, offering them to Brahman, that's consecration, and abandoning attachment, that's detachment. Detachment and consecration, the two legs of karma yoga. That if you fulfill those two conditions, then he says clearly, one is not tainted by sin. Actually, not only by sin, but by any action whatsoever, good action or bad action. The great principle in karma yoga being that even good karma can cause problems because it is a source of attachment. So it's not only about eliminating bad karma, it's about eliminating any form of attachment. And now we are ready to continue further. Krishna is in a marathon. He gives lots of principles. And as you are going to see, these principles are a sort of a divine guarantee. In the shloka, in the strophe, verse it, I call them shlokas, but you can call them by other Western words. In the strophe number 11, Krishna then continues saying, Yogis, having abandoned attachment, perform actions only by the, by the body, mind, intellect, and also by the senses for the purification of the self. Or in another formulation, in another reading, you can twist these centers and saying, by means of the body, the mind, the intellect, and even the senses alone, the yogis, abandoning attachment, perform actions for self-purification. Self-purification here, of course, does not mean to clean yourself. That's a double entendre. Sanskrit loves very much these multiple meanings in a sentence, especially spiritual Sanskrit. Here what was meant by this was purification of a spiritual nature, self-purification, purification of the self means in this context, in the context of this spirituality of Krishna, it means to abandon the ego and to go to the self. 
the biggest conflict defined by metaphysics in the human personality is the fact that we have an artificial personality which is external called persona or mask which is the ego and which is conditioned by the DNA from our parents from the karma of our previous lives from the astrological sign under which we are born and other such superficial influences because all those as deep as they would look to a psychologist they are still superficial in the big picture and the human being also has a witnessing consciousness in the brain of the human being there appears this awareness this presence this mindfulness this awareness of the moment and of the place and this is the higher self the higher consciousness and the purification of the self is precisely the spiritual process by which a spiritual practitioner less and less gradually less and less identifies to the ego and more and more realizes reveals or discovers the self that is why the very spiritual process in of evolution sometimes goes against the ego and we live in a world which is worshipping the ego and everybody does things in which you are supposed to satisfy your ego and going against your ego is like going against your best interest that is of course a selfish limitation because your best interest is not the interest of your ego and of your personality your ego or your personality is an empty mask which takes you to disaster because the ego is blind and it can only lead you and anybody into a ditch and that is why it is the witness the true self the higher consciousness which knows where our lives should go what should we do with ourselves what is dharma what is the proper course of action that is why in life we have to serve our higher self not to serve our ego but of course most of the time we do serve the ego people do serve the ego and that is called here in this context by krishna the purification of the self or self purification in the meaning of identify more and more who you are for example when in a state of clarity you take a decision that i'm going to do laya yoga meditation with a very excellent mantra or i am going to sublime my energy from my low chakras this way and that way and then 3 days later or 3 months later or 3 years later you are disappointed you are depressed and you say ah, i don't even know if i want to do this what do i want to do this is actually a moment in which the ego is fighting with the self there is a part of your mind which because of some fixation has negativities and in a way it is self destructive definitely not spiritual and then here you have a decision which you took 3 months ago in a moment of clarity and your present state in which you are not very spiritual and in which your ego your personality says nah, 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 nah. what do you do how to learn to separate between the ego and the higher self how to learn to respect the higher self as your true i and to say right now i don't feeling i don't feel like doing this but uh, it's not me sometimes in some systems 
especially in shamanistic systems of thinking, they push this even further. Instead of saying that, oh, this is just a part of your psyche, which is not integrated, which is selfish, part of your mask and ego, and which is rebellious, and you have to deal with it, they would go even further and they would say, this is a demon. This is an entity which coupled with your aura like a leech, like a blood sucker, and it is sucking your energy and injecting stupid ideas in your mind, and it is making you go against something which when you are clear, when you are in a state of tremor of the heart, you took that decision and you said, I'm going to cling to this. And now you are not clinging to it anymore. To make it even more distant, some shamanistic systems, and there are many shamanistic systems of practice, including in Tibetan yoga and in Indian yoga, they simply prefer to push these things as demons. Some psychologists would say there are no demons. Even Mahatma Gandhi said there are no, no other demons than those we have in our own mind, that we produce in our own mind. But if they are in your own mind, you hug them dearly. If you say this is a demon that is parasiting me, then you become more aggressive to it and you cut it off more decisively, exactly as you would have some parasitic thing on your skin. So it's a trick maybe, but it's a very profitable trick, it's a very efficient trick to externalize these parts of the ego and to declare them as demons. Because then you get in the mood of fighting those demons, of crushing them, of expelling them. If you are in this psychoanalytical position where you say, no, they are not really demons. They are just non-integrated parts of my personality. Well, you should crush them anyway, quickly. But then uh, you may get a little bit more tolerant and merciful and say, maybe not in 2012, maybe in 2013. If you would know that it's like a leech on your aura, you would crush it in 2012, you wouldn't wait until 2013. So all these are just interfaces, ways of looking upon these things. But that's the meaning of the self-purification. The self-purification is more like a shift of awareness. Instead of saying, I am the person, the personality, I'm saying, I am the self and the meaning of life is clear from this level, and therefore whatever stands in the way of it are either shambles of my ego or demons, whatever, whichever way you want to look at them. And therefore, it says by means of the body, by the mind, by the intellect, and even by the senses alone, the yogis abandoning attachment perfect action, perform action for self-purification. Basically says, what kind of actions do the yogis do? Because he was speaking about karma yoga. And he said the yogis, by using the mind, the manas, the buddhi, mind and intellect are the Sanskrit words, manas and buddhi, which are parts of the human mind. It's a more discrete psychology of yoga, describing the functioning of the mind on different levels. And even with the senses, which actually in the yoga understanding means with the sense organs, the karmendriyas and the jnanendriyas, the five action organs and the five sense organs, the yogis perform action for self-purification. Which means an action performed by a yogi, even when it is external, he sees it as a form of self-purification. Karma Yoga, after all, 
is seen as evolution. You do karma yoga because you want to reach samadhi. You do karma yoga because you want to reach enlightenment. You do karma yoga because you want to discover the self and to detach from the ego. And that is why even if you do like Swami Shivananda a hospital or a colony for lepers, that has a projection inside because from inside that is the way of Swami Shivananda of self-purification. He does that, either he considers that it is his moral duty or he considers that in this way he performs some, he gains some merit, but for him doing this, it's like he's a man of action and he says, I cannot just sit here with my arms crossed and do nothing. I have attained the state of samadhi. I am looking high into the spiritual things. What am I doing? I've got many hours per day to do something. That is why the need for karma yoga is a need which is intrinsical. All of you should try to do karma yoga at some time because as I many times said, People want to make a difference. People don't just want to come to Agama and to buy some yoga courses worth 5,000 baht and get the papers, get the courses, go home. But what difference do I make in the world? It is true that there is a time, especially when you are in the shock of the first level practice, when your world is being turned upside down by all the new things which you learn, and when you have to reframe a lot of knowledge and to ask yourself some fundamental questions, and you are here at the yoga hall for six, seven hours per day, it's difficult to think like you barely have the time to eat, to rest, to do small things, and you are very much into this. But as you get more time in the yoga practice and as the yoga practice becomes more of a homework, every human being says, now I have two hours this afternoon. In those two hours, I could have typed one of the lectures of Swami. I could have helped to put one of these things on YouTube. I could have done something to spread the message. I could at least have adorned the yoga hall so it looks more friendly and as a nicer place to be. Like everybody wants to make a difference. Remember, it's a very utopian position to say, no, I want to withdraw from any action, go somewhere, not speak to anybody, not see anybody, not do anything, not act in any way. People act, and when they act, they want to make a difference. Swami Shivananda wanted to make a difference. You can say that, would Swami Shivananda, if he wouldn't have done a hospital or a leper colony or something, would he have gotten bored? Like he did it because now he was enlightened and he was just tapping his fingers on the table and he was having drumming his fingers and having nothing to do and then he had to fill up the day with something. That may be a psychological explanation if you are a very cynical type of person. But the point is that from within himself, Swami Shivananda said, I'm 50 years old, I'm going to live until I'll be 70. What do I do in these 20 years? I gained enlightenment for myself and I can spend so many hours per day with my pupils teaching them and out of them there will come 1, 2, 10, 20, 50 who will also reach the state of samadhi. So, but for the rest, that doesn't take all my day. What else do I want to do? Do I want to make a difference? Do I want to help? Do I want to contribute? And of course, people do want to do that.
Everybody wants to know. If every, but people say, Swami, I don't get the good idea. I would just like to have a brilliant idea. Of course, even while I'm here in Kopangan, I want to do something. And believe me, there are many, many things which can be done. Just ask the people that do, and you will see that many things can still be done. And that is why, this is how the yogis act, says Krishna. The yogis act looking at their action as a method of self-purification. Either they use the body, or they use the mind, or they use the sense organs. What they do is just spiritual practice. It is like a spiritual text of Kashmiri Shaivism, the Shiva Sutra, says when you have reached this, then, for example, they say your words become mantras, your movements become mudras. It's like when you act from that standpoint, everything gets sacralized. You can sacralize your, sanctify your life by doing karma yoga. Of course, the demonic or the limited parts of the ego will defend themselves. This is the dialogue because we have a part in us which says make a difference. If we don't live for other people, if we don't live for the world, then what are we going to do with our lives? And then there is a skeptical, cynical part, which is also lazy, and says, ah, not today, you know, let's just, uh, like a part of me wants to be a couch potato and do nothing, and a part of me wants to make a difference, change the world, is electrified with this spiritual dimension of our lives. And in the shloka, in the strophe number 12, Krishna continues. You will see in this chapter, number 5, Krishna is giving a lot of standards. Krishna is setting a lot of standards. Beautiful. He basically tells to Arjuna, and you can say why, because Arjuna is in a completely different circumstance here in this context, and why he keeps on talking about yogis and this, because Krishna, first of all, has to take the stars, the sky, as the limit. There is this proverb, which is in the first level courses, which says, if you want to trace your path straight, attach your chariot to a star. Like, if you have to look at the highest possible, the most utopian, divine, perfect possible, attach your chariot to a star, and then you'll guide your life straight. And Krishna says in the shloka number 12, the united one, he means the one which is in divine union, the person that has reached enlightenment of various degrees. He also means the one who is well poised, harmonized, because yoga, the result of this union, is a certain form of wisdom, harmony. So the united one, having abandoned the fruit of action, which is again and again the same thing, eternal principle, attains to eternal peace. Everybody say, I, Swami, I want to reach rest. Life is an agitation without end. All I'm looking for is peace. Peace, peace, peace without end. Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. That's even the sadhus of India. This final mantra which they use is like, what do we look for? We look for peace. The great esoteric Christian practitioners practicing the prayer of the heart, 
they call themselves Hesychasts. And Hesychia means appeasement. Again, you have to find the peace. What is everybody going for? For peace. The kingdom of heaven is a sort of peace. And everybody says, I am tired of having run through samsara for thousands of lifetimes. I am tired of having had soap operas and telenovelas. I am tired of the ego and its clamorous needs. What I want is peace. Even when people commonly die, the, 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 the wish which is emitted for them is rest in peace. If you rest and you are not in peace, then you are in a hell. If you are 340 years in the astral world and you are chased by dogs and in an eternal war zone, that's called hell. It's like a nightmare of 350 years which simply gives you no peace. The real value is peace. That's why think about it also in this way. Do you have peace in your hearts? Are you at peace? Or do you have an itch up your asses and you say, when is yoga over? Because I want to do something wild. Some people have no peace. Some people live in peace and some people are itchy all the time to do something. Then, when, how will you find peace? First of all, you have, but some people say, Swami, to me, peace sounds as boring. That's exactly what I'm afraid of, that I'll go in the kingdom of heaven and float on a cloud with two fatty little angels and there is going to be a dull, boring, new age-ish music playing all the time and I'm not going to get a blowjob and to visit a nightclub, you know. It's like, it's going to be boredom without end. You know, is, is paradise an entertaining, thrilling place? Like some people have this thing with thrill. I need to be constantly excited. I need to have something exciting, but I have no peace. Like how often in your life do you have the desire, give me five days of peace. I, right now I just need peace from my job, from my family, from the world, from my own ego, from my own. I just want peace, you know. Many people when they die, when they are old, they are like almost tired by life. I lived a long life and now I hope that death is like a long, long sleep, like a peace. I need some peace. This peace is a very important concept. And Jesus also said, I came to bring peace. peace. But he said, do not think that my peace is the same peace as the peace of the world. Because I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Like the peace which Jesus brought to the first hundred years of Christianity was that they were thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. They were persecuted for just saying the name of Jesus. There was not much peace in that. And yet, he said, I'm talking about another peace, not the fact that people are going to leave you alone and you'll be a couch potato for the next 20 years. I'm talking about some other peace, which is the peace of the heart, the peace of the mind, which is the metaphysical peace. And that is why Krishna presents it as the goal. He says, 
the one who is in divine union, having abandoned the fruits of the action, attains to lasting peace, to eternal peace. Again, people say, Swami, but for me, I would not do eight hours of yoga per day to reach to peace, because I want to take a motorcycle and jump over the Grand Canyon. That's one of my dreams in this life. I want to do something outrageous. I have fire up my ass and I have to do something restless and wild. Therefore, because of this, knowing this, knowing that people are of different kinds, the spiritual enlightenment, even Krishna in this chapter, presents it with different words. Because here is the deal. The spiritual accomplishment does not represent a state of mind. The spiritual realization represents a state of consciousness. It represents a state corresponding to Atman, the Supreme Self, in its pure form. And as such, this pure existence cannot be expressed in mental words. Any attempt to describe Samadhi, Nirvana, the kingdom of heaven, or that state in words, is meant to failure. Even Jesus, when he speaks about the kingdom of heaven, he uses parables. Sometimes those parables actually sound pretty far-fetched. Milarepa, when he comes out of Samadhi, he composes poems. So does Paramahamsa Yogananda. Like, where was I? What did I do? How does it feel? What did I experience? Here is a poem. Maybe you can understand the language of poetry, which is all obliquel and insinuating and indirect, because direct you cannot say anything. And that's why the spiritual reality cannot truly be described. If I say you are going to nirvana and you are going to reach peace, that's in a certain way true, but it's not the whole truth. It's only a partial exp expression, and that partial expression risks to turn away the people who are very dynamic. There are people who say, Swami, I would wish to go in a kingdom of heaven where for the next billion years I can spin the galaxies on my little finger. I feel like inside me I am a tornado. I want to control the history of the world. I want to do, do, do. To me, if you just tell me peace, peace to me is equivalent to boredom, to stagnation. And of course, that there exists also that aspect of God and that aspect of enlightenment and that aspect of the kingdom of heaven. It's both peace and eternal dynamism, but the human mind gets blocked. How can you have peace if at the same time you are eternally throbbing in a dynamism which is endless? It is possible. In the divine consciousness, these two opposites and many others are joined in oneness. And that's why you cannot express by intellectual concepts that state, and it is imperative that you experience it yourself, because no description can really make justice to that reality. And because of this, 
here, that's just one way of saying it. But other people, they don't say you will reach eternal peace. Because some people say, oh, eternal peace. Oh, real boring place to be. Okay, what about eternal bliss? What about eternal freedom? What about almightiness? What about omniscience? All knowledge. What about omnipresence? Ubiquity. Like the universe, like there are so many dimensions of nirvana, of the spiritual reality, and each one of them is meant to attract the right kind of people. There are different temperaments of people, and those people read different spiritual texts. And because your spiritual text might not attract them, they need to be promised something else. In the fundamental tantric text of meditation, Vijnana Bhairava Tantra, it is said very clearly from the very first shlokas, whatever description is given about the consciousness of Bhairava, which in their text means the divine consciousness, the universal consciousness, it is automatically false. If you can describe it, it's not God. Because God is uncircumscribed by any thought or concept. If you can speak about it, it's not the divine consciousness. You can only allude to the kingdom of heaven and the divine consciousness. And says the Vigyana Bhairava Tantra, the text, and all the descriptions which you still find in literature are just like small candies which a mother gives to her baby to trick him into taking bitter medicine. Like to make a child take medicine, you sugarcoat it, or you make a deal. If you take a spoon of this shitty Chinese tea, mommy is going to give you some candy afterwards. And the child does it for the sake of the candy. In the same way, the spiritual texts say, if you reach to spiritual emancipation, you'll reach eternal peace. That addresses to those of you for whom eternal peace is the biggest candy. It's the biggest carrot hanging in front of your nose, and it's the biggest promise. And you go for eternal peace. But the divine consciousness cannot be expressed by peace. Peace is just a human word which expresses a state of placidity of some sort. The divine consciousness is way, way beyond that, and it cannot be contained. That is why even in the beautiful inspired cultish movie called The Matrix, when Neo wants to take the green pill to see for himself, Neo gives him his last warning and he says, Mind you, I'm not even telling you that it's going to be nice, but it is going to be the truth. That's all I can promise. Like the kingdom of heaven exists, nirvana exists. Many of you have in your hearts the thing that you look for nirvana. And you look for nirvana not even knowing exactly what you look for because it can't be described properly. It's like a mad thing to look for the kingdom of heaven when you don't know what it is. But some of you may have been lured by the thing that you won't never give need to take ecstasy pills because in the kingdom of heaven ecstasy is abundant, eternal and for free forever. 
and therefore you are a buff of ecstasy. You are a person addicted to endorphin flow in the brain, and you say, I don't want to buy ecstasy and to ruin my brain and my body. I want ecstasy which comes for free and forever and which is legal and all that. And then you read some spiritual texts which speak about spirituality under the form of ecstatic union with God. But other people don't promise ecstatic union with God. In some Buddhist texts they say if you still feel ecstasy, that's an inferior thing because it's just a state of mind. You feel a sensation of great pleasure. And that pleasure is maybe a thousand times more than any pleasure you felt still a great pleasure and it's still a sensory mental thing then some people will get disappointed so you say ah so you mean that God is not pleasurable then I don't know if I want God because my quest is for pleasure I want something which gives me pleasure until it oozes out of my nose and if that kingdom of heaven of yours can do that then I will have a piece of that please because the kingdom of heaven thing satisfies me. But other people go for knowledge. Other people go for peace. Other people go for meaning. Other people go for power. Other people go for other and other things. And all of them are insufficient attempts of describing the undescribable. And then, of course, he says the non-united one in the same shloka the one who is unsteady, unbalanced, the one who did not reach this union mystica, impelled by desire and attached to the fruit, is bound. Here, he uses uh, not the opposite, because normally you would say, he who is not united with the divine, who is spurred by desire, being attached to the fruit of action, is having no peace. Because the first sentence said, he who is united with the divine, having abandoned the fruit of action, attains to everlasting peace. And the one who has not that, has no peace. But no, he uses another opposite from where you can say that there are alternative ways of defining the divine nature. He says, if you did not reach that, then he says, you are bound. Bound as the opposite of free. So for him, to have peace is equivalent with being free and to be bound is equivalent with having no peace. He makes it very clear and for you, it may, it may sound as a truism. He who is united with the divine, having abandoned the fruit of action, attains to lasting peace. He who is not united with the divine, who is spurred by desire, being attached to the fruit of action, is firmly bound. That's the very definition of enlightenment. That's the very definition of freedom. And Krishna makes it clear. Like this in a certain way and many others. It is a metaphysical clarification. Like somebody says, Krishna, you are talking and talking. What are you promising really? That's what Krishna is promising. Krishna says, oh, did I forgot to mention it? Well, here it is. If you do this and this, you will reach everlasting peace and you will be free and you will have happiness. And he uses other and other words circumscribing this ineffable, ineffable reality. And he makes it clear, if you don't do it, you won't have it. 
it's valid both ways. The statement and its converse, its reciprocal, are both valid there. He simply makes it clear, like Krishna does not want to leave things unclearly, so that somebody afterwards comes and says, oh, but Krishna didn't speak about that. Krishna didn't clearly mention that. Oh, I am not very peaceful, I didn't reach peace, but I am very enlightened. Then somebody who says, let's look what Krishna says. If you tell me that, it must be some bollocks, because look what Krishna says. You have reached peace, you have reached happiness, you have reached freedom, and it comes when you give up the fruits of action, and this and that. Krishna is making the point very clear, because there are so many people in this world who either because of demonic delusion or simply because of wishful thinking and because of their funny ego, they are distorting spiritual truths constantly. Everything from the words of the Buddha to the words of Jesus and from the teachings of Rumi to the teachings of Krishna, everything in this world has its share of distorters, weird sects, weird cults, weird things which appear all the time in which people suddenly have their own weird interpretation of things or the angel Moroni came and told them a very different thing which has to happen in a very special way. Therefore, um, Krishna is very clear about the things and he is very clear for a purpose which will appear evident as we go through it. And he gives more definitions. He sets some standards in front of Arjuna. He says, mentally renouncing all actions, or another expression by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi was having renounced all actions by the mind, which means renouncing the action of the mind, or renouncing the action by the mind, with the help of the mind. Mentally, therefore, renouncing all actions, and self-controlled, Krishna always loves to put these conditions to say when there is renunciation of the actions in the mind and when one is self-controlled. Like, it's not whenever. It happens when some conditions are fulfilled. The embodied one, which means the yogi that is in a body, the dweller in the body, the yogi that is still alive, incarnated in a body, the embodied one, the dweller in the body, rests happily in the nine-gated city, neither acting nor causing others to act either by body or senses. Let's analyze it again. Having renounced all action by the mind, the dweller in the body rests in happiness, which is very important. He doesn't rest in the body. He rests happily in happiness. That's another characteristic of this spiritual peace, that there is a sort of contentment, what the yogis called santosha. So he rests happily in the city of nine gates. That's a Vedic, a Vedantic, Upanishadic name, the city with nine gates. All those who did the art of dying here in Agama should remember that. The city of nine gates is the nickname for the body, because the body has nine natural openings 
which are the mouth, the two nostrils, the two eyes, and the two ears in the area of the head, that's seven, plus the two lower ones, the anus and the urinary opening, and that makes the body is like a city with nine gates. That's just a metaphor. The text is at times poetically going. So, having renounced all actions by the mind, which has a double entendre, like no actions which you do with your mind, or having renounced in your mind at all the actions, which is the main meaning here, which says in your mind you simply think to yourself, I give up the actions. I am not saying it and not thinking it. First of all, I'm thinking it in my mind. Indeed, honest to myself and honest to God, I gave up the fruits of the action. So, giving up, mentally renouncing all actions, because mentally renouncing all actions doesn't mean that you don't do the actions. It means that you, in your mind, you have renounced the fruits of those actions. You do the action still, but the action is a non-action. The action is doing without doing. The action is karma yoga. It is not an action which produces karma anymore. So mentally renouncing all actions, the dweller in the body rests in happiness, which is a very important little word. It's not a boring thing, it's in happiness. In the city of nine gates, neither acting nor causing action to be done by others. He is dwelling, not doing action. What does it mean? Is he a couch potato? But Mahatma Gandhi did act. Swami Shivananda did act. Buddha did act. Krishna himself did act. So what do you mean not acting? Not acting which means not producing karma. Doing only that special of kind of action which is like a shadow action. You do it but you don't get framed for it. You do it but there will be no karma for it. You do it but actually God does it through you and you are only witnessing it. When you do it, you are a non-doer. Your body does it and you observe it and witness it. And you can always say the gunas have acted upon the gunas. I didn't do it. The nature did it. It's part of the nature. You cannot stop the rain from falling. You cannot stop the tigers from eating the gazelles. You cannot stop the seas from having waves. The gunas are acting upon the gunas. I also being a part of an ecosystem, I for example eat. We, you cannot live on this planet without eating unless some paranormal ability is triggered. But the normal average person has to eat. And therefore, what's happening when I eat? The gunas are acting upon the gunas. I can as well be detached from that phenomenon. And I say it happens, but everybody eats something on the face of this earth. That's the very nature of existence on earth. And therefore, it's not that my spirit came here specially and says, let's eat. God is eating through my mouth. The whole universe is eating through my mouth. The cosmic consciousness is eating through my mouth. The gunas act upon the gunas. The nature eats nature. What has that got to do with me being an observer of it? 
I am a witness of it. This is a very metaphysical type of detachment. So it says here that the dweller, the yogi, stays in the body, neither acting, which means neither producing karma, not that he doesn't do things. He feels like he's not doing things, but he knows that his body, propelled by God or by the gunas, does things. It's a double entendre which is very fine. It's a subjective thing. Like he says, I'm not acting. What do you mean you're not acting? Yesterday you published a book. Yes, but it's God who published it through me. I still don't consider myself the author of that book. I didn't publish it. My body did it, but I'm not my body. My body will die. I shall not. And therefore, neither acting nor causing action to be done. That's very relevant in the understanding of Shivananda. He says neither acting nor causing others to act through their body or senses. That means when a yogi realizes it's so good to be in this state of karma yoga, then why would I want other people to act? When I look at other people acting, I just see and identifying with that action instead of being detached from it. I see them catching themselves in their own web. I see them weaving their own prison, their own karmic prison for the future. And this can't produce any joy to me because if I have discovered a greater joy, a greater peace, a greater knowledge, a greater freedom, then of course I would want others to discover the same, at least to have a term for comparison and to be able to make their choices. And that's why a yogi would push the wheel of Dharma in the right direction, would spin the wheel of Dharma in the right direction. A yogi would not say, oh, I have discovered how to be detached, but you guys just act, 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 act. No. A yogi would say, be aware. I discovered the principle by which the nature continues to spin you to spin in its own way, in her own way, and by which I, you, can be detached from it. And I discovered that and I'm advising you to mind that great truth as well. That means a yogi would try to determine other people to also not act, not in the meaning of not doing deeds but in the meaning of doing deeds with detachment. It would be a hypo hypocrite and unfair thing that I have discovered freedom for myself, but I'm telling you, oh, just get caught in your own web of actions, do actions, produce karma. When you, a yogi also doesn't feel like causing others to act exactly in the same way, it's part of an elementary morality, because if not, we would have double standards. For me, it's good not to produce karma, but you are a bunch of losers, so keep on producing karma. That's not fair. If I am consistent with my view, if I am of integrity, then my view is being expressed outside. I think it's not good for any one of you to keep producing karma, and that's why learning the principles of karma yoga and understanding the message of Krishna is very important. Act without acting. That's the message. So those two 
things or three things are important. Renouncing the actions in the mind. Like if in your mind you don't give up, then that's, there is no consecration, there is no detachment. First of all, in your mind, you have to agree with this. Not maybe with everything, maybe you are too green for that, but at least one particular action and say, this is my karma yoga, concerning this one, I give up, I renounce the fruits of the action there. And renouncing with the mind, dwelling in happiness, and finally, last but not least, neither acting nor causing others to act. You see, Krishna is just describing an existential state. He is like tempting Arjuna. He is luring Arjuna. He says, this is how the perfect man or woman lives. This is the ideal. I'm talking to you here about the kingdom of heaven. I'm talking to you here about the goal. He constantly speaks in perfection terms, like how it ought to be. And of course, Arjuna is not there yet. And he gets the message because basically he indirectly tells to Arjuna, if you would be like this, you wouldn't need me to explain to you right here on a battlefield the science of karma yoga. You are attached. You are selfish. Wake up. And let us continue with the shloka number 14. In this trove, he says, Neither agency nor actions, but by action we mean action with karma, karma, action and reaction. Neither agency nor action does the Lord, God, create for the world, Not, nor union with the fruits of actions. It is nature that acts. That's a very, very important thing, because many people shrug their shoulders and they say, if God would have wanted things in a different way, then God would have made them in a different way. But the fact that we human beings get attached and we appropriate psychologically the fruits of our action and we say, I did this, therefore I deserve, good or bad, I deserve the fruits of this, the reward of this, this is something which is a divine consciousness. Yeah, yeah, we are uh, bound beings, we are not enlightened, yes, we are prisoners in samsara, but ultimately we are prisoners in samsara because God wanted us to be prisoners of samsara, and that contains, among uh, others, the mechanism that we get attached to the actions, and we do attached action. Many people put up with it. While Krishna says it very clearly, in case you have any doubt of this, or about this, you are at odds with Krishna himself, who says, The Lord creates neither the authorship, the authorship of action, like I did that. You take it upon yourself. This is not something implicit and automatic, like a package deal, which is your birth obligation. You are obliged to have authorship of action. So the Lord creates neither the authorship of action nor the action of beings. Action in this term meaning action and reaction, action that produces karma. People say we have karma because God wanted us to have karma. Krishna disagrees. Krishna says God doesn't want you to have karma. It is there because it is an inevitable law of the universe. It's a mechanical law. 
But the fact that there exists a mechanical law, it does not automatically imply that God wants you to be under the yoke of that law. Many people define that's very important in all the great spiritual theologies, very few of them have this sort of passive approach. Like there is a God out there, but he doesn't give a damn if you do something or if you don't do. That's a little bit some of the Buddhist approaches, some of the Vedantic approaches, which define God as a sort of prakasha, a light without any action, without any power, a sort of kaivalya, detached, void, something, Brahman, an absolute consciousness, which doesn't budge a finger. That's a God which Tantra, for example, does not accept, because that's, they say this is Shiva without Shakti. God has not only Shiva, which means consciousness, God also has Shakti, which means power. And therefore, God is alive, not inert, not dead. And that is why, for example, the beautiful statement which you learn when you learn about blessing in the lessons of Agama Yoga, Saint Mary of Egypt, when she gives a blessing at some point, she expresses a fundamental truth. She says, she says before she yields her blessing, she says, Blessed be God who loves human beings and wishes for their salvation. There are three levels. Blessed be God. Yeah, yeah. Blessed be Dharmakaya. Blessed be the void. So what? Down here we kill chicken and we fry them and we eat them. We do all the shit on the planet Earth. Like, sure, there is a Dharmakaya, a Buddha nature, a void. What do I have? When I will reach there, when one life I will feel motivated, I'll go to Nirvana and then I'll enjoy that. They say it's great fun. But until then, what do I have to share? It lives there. I live here. People live a total state of separation. Like Nietzsche felt it painfully when he said, God is dead. Like, where is God? You know, that God is dead. He was mentally handicapped. He was insane. And he expressed it in an unhealthy, unsane way. But his statement has that power of desperation. He expresses a revolt against this bitter world of Kali Yuga, in which you, all you can feel is that God is dead. There is nothing. But Saint Mary of Egypt, who had found the answer to those questions, says different. She says, blessed be God, who loves the human beings. That's a semi-active thing. Like, yeah, yeah, right. Everywhere in the Bible they say God loves us. And people die in domestic violence and car crashes and tsunamis and tortured in wars. And it's like, God loves us. So who gives a dime about God's love? Because although God loves us, look what a misery we live in. And people get depressed every day. So what's it worth? You know, it's like, what if God wouldn't love me? Would I feel any difference? You know, life is still a shit. Either God loves you or doesn't love you. That's still not very active. So she says, blessed be God who loves the human beings. But some people say, and so what? And then she goes the full Monty. She says, and who wishes for their salvation. God wishes for everyone in this room to be saved. Ridiculous theologians, self-styled theologians like Calvin, 
the Swiss theologian, the neo-Protestant theologian and others, they came up with incredibly ridiculous stuff in their own disturbed minds, such as, oh, God doesn't want everybody to be saved. There will be a hundred thousand saints, worthy ones saved at the doomsday, and all the rest are lost already. And God knows who is going to be saved and who is not going to be saved. And therefore, you can as well start a business or you know, start the East India Company and make a truckload of money and have fun because the only thing which you can do is believe in Jesus Christ. And if you are on the list of chosen ones, lucky, lucky you, you are saved. And if not, you can't do anything about it. That is a disastrous Christian theology. It brought disastrous effects in the Western civilization in the approach to spirituality, because it is not corresponding to the truth. Saint Mary of Egypt, who was at that level, she says, Blessed be God, who loves the human beings and who wishes for their salvation. But the divine consciousness has imposed upon itself not to wish imperatively, like not to force you, into your own salvation to give you the lee to give you the freedom so that you can choose or not your salvation but if you choose and you say God I heard that there is a rumor that you wish for me to be saved so move a finger do something that's exactly what the divine consciousness is waiting for for an invitation that invitation is called prayer that's the art of prayer. If you talk to God, God can interfere in your life. If not, the divine consciousness is obliged by its own ethics, by its own rules of the game, to stay away until you reach to that point. That is why you will be surprised that prayer is one of the most difficult things in the world. Because that's one of, it's the ultimate obstacle because in the moment when you do a real prayer, the divine consciousness has the door open and is invited into your life. It is invited to do something about it. That's not a small thing. It's a very great thing. That's why the demons always try to prevent you from praying by telling you that there is no God, there is no prayer, God is dead. God does not answer prayers. Prayers are just a selfish, ridiculous thing and they are just the expression of inferiority and it's just, ah, nah, nah, you're going to lie down on your knees and kowtow like an idiot and say, please, please, God, and so on. What a miserable, pathetic, no, like you are supposed to be arrogant and vanitose and all that and not pray. And eventually, even if you have the intention to pray, then uh, your inner blockages or the demonic entities, they will say, oh, they just brought fresh butter to 7-Eleven. Go quickly to 7-Eleven and buy some butter because the island is full of party people and they keep buying all like locusts and uh, buy quickly your thing. And then when you come home, you forgot to make the prayer. And then it's 11 o'clock in the night and you better go to bed because tomorrow morning there is a meditation and somehow the day has passed and you didn't do a prayer.
Therefore, read when you read the people who are in the environment of prayer, you will see that people living in monasteries, hermitages, ashrams, they would do anything. They would do asanas. They would do gardening. They would work in the kitchen. But mysteriously, they would not pray. Like prayer is the number one thing because prayer simply brings us to this. Krishna says very clearly, it is not the Lord, it is not God that creates the authorship of action or the karma. The attachment and the karma. These are a choice. Therefore, the divine consciousness doesn't want anybody to be prisoner. Nor does he create the link between the doer, the action, and its fruit. Na nature carries this out. Nor union with the fruits of action. It is nature that acts. These are all laws of prakriti. Nature is prakriti. It is what I told you earlier. The gunas act upon the gunas. As long as you live on earth, you have a body. That body needs to eat. By eating, you destroy some of the nature. There is farming, there is agriculture, there is this. That if you are not vegetarian, animals are being killed so that you can eat. And the list continues. And Krishna says, these are all things of nature. Exactly as lions eat gazelles, and there is no way to stop that. Exactly as a tree grows old, and then it falls down, and a young tree sprouts and replaces the old one. These are all just the laws of nature. And the laws of nature can seem cruel. Every person in this room in a hundred years is going to be dead. And if you are going to have friends, children, or loved ones around you, they are probably going to cry bitter tears because you die. And everybody can say, there is a pain and a pain and a pain. I had my grandparents die. I had my parents die. I can see my friends and lovers die. No, everything and everybody dies. No, from time to time, even if you manage to be happy most of the time, from time to time you still get a low blow and you have to suffer. It's almost impossible to go without suffering. Krishna says these are laws of nature. Nature is made in this way. Where there is light, there is darkness. Where there is yin, there is yang. Where there is up, there is low. Where there is cold, there is hot. Where there is one thing, there is its opposite as well. Nature has all these things. But the spiritual reality is beyond the nature. Krishna constantly refers to the spirit, to the Supreme Self, which is Atman, which is Purusha, which is the spirit which is not part of this nature. Of course, some people would say, but Swami, in a tantric metaphysics like you teach, isn't nature part of the truth? Yes, but afterwards. Not while you are blind. Nature becomes part of the truth in the moment when you understand the spirit, and then you can bring the spirit in the nature. You cannot bring spirit in the nature as long as you haven't reached any spirit. The blind cannot lead another blind man. Only somebody that found the spirit can lead to the spirit. And that is why, please remember, let's read it again. 
neither agency nor actions does the Lord create for the world. That means you are not obliged to have karma and you are not obliged to assume authorship. That's just a function of your mind. Somewhere in Prakriti, in the mind, there is a function called ahamkara, me, I-ness, selfishness, which assumes I am the doer of this, I have to assume this, I am doing that. And Krishna says, pay attention, because that's not from God directly. People will say, but isn't nature from God? Yes, indirectly, yes, you can say that. But again, in nature, you can regulate some things. Like there are mosquitoes that wish to suck your blood. And then you put a mosquito net and it's not going to happen. You can modify the things of nature, at least if not on a total scale, at least on a local scale, on a scale around you. Some people would say maybe the human beings are made to be omnivorous, like to eat both vegetarian and non-vegetarian. And some people say it may be so, but I choose for the time being to be vegetarian. It's as simple as that. It is my choice and it's a local. I can modify the nature according to the spirit. Nature is equally, it's 50-50. There is some light, there is some darkness. Some things are beautiful, a sunset is beautiful. And then if in front of you, you see a lion attacking and devouring a gazelle, it's an atrocious scene. It's full of blood, it's full of mayhem, and you turn away in disgust, although the lion has no choice. The lion is made to be a lion and to eat the weak and sick and old gazelles as a regulator of the ecosystem. There is nothing wrong in what the lion does. It doesn't mean it's nice or pleasant for some people to see it, to watch it. That is why this sentence is also very important because it says, some people say that if the nature is the way it is, that's the way the spirit wants it. So if, for example, you are getting attached, eh, attachment comes from God. Because if God would have wanted to make us unattached, then why didn't he create me without attachment? This is a flawed judgment. It's a very flawed way of interpreting things. Krishna, therefore, wants to say clearly, not the agency of the actions, not the actions, not the link between the doer, the action, and the fruits of the action, are from the spirit. They are part of the nature, but remember that nature is a place which can be improved upon. Like in the nature, there is pain and pleasure. Do you want to live 50% of your life in pain and 50% of your life in pleasure? No. Every human being by reflex tries to run from pain and to live in satisfaction. That is why, please remember that the consciousness and the nature interact. They dance. There is a dance of Shiva with Shakti. And Shiva is reflected in the mirror that is Shakti. And therefore, nature can be chaotic or nature can be divinized. The divinization of nature is the reflection of Shiva in Shakti. And as such, please understand that although there exists 
a sort of a free thing happening. The divine consciousness is a consciousness which has an intent. The divine consciousness wants the human beings into a state of salvation, into a state of realization. And Krishna continues with this fundamental metaphysical presentation. The Lord, the divine, does not accept the, neither the demerit, it means the sin, the error. The divine consciousness accepts neither the demerit nor even the merit of any human being. People address, and in many theologies this is, of course, a way of speaking, because here he says the cosmic intelligence does not accept the sin or even the merit of anyone. But people always pray to God and they say, God, cleanse me of my sins. God, please forgive my sins. Oh God, maybe I managed to do something good in front of you. How can a cosmic consciousness, which is one, which has no yin or yang, which knows no duality or differentiation, make any difference between a sinner and the virtues. There is no heaven and hell at the level of oneness. There is only oneness. There is no sinner or virtues at the level of the cosmic consciousness. In the moment when you reach the crown chakra, in the moment when you reach this unified field of energy, which corresponds to Sahasrara, which corresponds to the oneness, in that moment there is no more sin or virtue. You have gone beyond that. That is why the great yogic tradition states very clearly, karma cannot go beyond the level of Ajna Chakra. That's why the last residues of karma are consumed at the level of Ajna Chakra. There cannot be karma in Sahasrara. In Sahasrara, there is no merit or demerit. There is no virtue or sin. There is another understanding which cannot be explained with the mind. Because people say, so then how it is? If you are a murderer or a saint, it's just all the same? That's a very ignorant statement. Because the truth is that oneness cannot be understood by the mind. Because the mind is dual. It's yin and yang. It has two hemispheres. It has ha and ta, sun and moon. And because of this, it is impossible to understand exactly oneness. And that's exactly what Krishna, Krishna is speaking here about the highest consciousness, about Purusha, Atman, Brahman, the Shiva consciousness, the Bhairava consciousness, which is beyond yin and yang, beyond karma. And he says, the Lord accepts neither the demerit nor even the merit of any. This is one of the paradoxical lessons in the whole of the Mahabharata. The Bhagavad Gita is a book from a much greater book, epic, called the Mahabharata. And in the end of Mahabharata, Arjuna goes, or uh, Yudhishthira actually, goes and in paradise, instead of seeing his brothers who are the good guys in the story, he sees the enemies who are the bad boys. And when he says, but what about, okay, maybe you got forgiveness of some sort and you got into paradise. Good for you guys. But what about my mother, my brothers? And they tell him, you don't want to know. And he says, well, actually I do. 
and then he goes into a dark, foul place where there is moaning and so on. And there he discovers his brother, the good guys, his family is in a dark place which is very much the analogous of hell. And he's puzzled. And then the voice of his father, Dharma, the cosmic Dharma, tells him, and thus, Yudhishthira, have you eliminated the last brim of illusion from your mind. Like he still lived with the funny belief that the good guys go to heaven and the bad guys go to hell. Karmically, things are different. I just finished the metaphysical workshop the last week and people say, that's what you told us. Yes, but that is not the divine consciousness punishing anybody. That is people living out their karma. If you have an aggressive, violent karma, when you die, and not only when you die, even when you dream, when you fall asleep and you dream, you go in a painful place where people chase you, try to kill you. There is conflict, you are fighting, you are angry, you are this and that. And that's not the Purusha. It's not the Shiva consciousness which decided that you should go in that dream. That's simply a simple resonance. It's a mechanism of nature. The gunas act upon the gunas. You have a lot of fire and it's dirty fire, impure fire, and it resonates with other dirty fire from the universe. And you go in a place where you find some other dirty fire so that you can live out your own dirty fire. You ask for it. You go to hell. Not There is no heaven and hell in the kingdom of heaven. There is no paradise and hell at the level of the unified consciousness. At the level of the one, there is only oneness. Therefore, he says, the all-pervading consciousness, the cosmic consciousness, does not accept the sin or even the merit of anyone. Wisdom is veiled by ignorance. Thereby, creatures are deluded. The wisdom of Sahasrara is madness for this world. And that's why people say, but we have to make a theology which makes sense. And that makes that the wisdom, which is the ultimate divine thing, is veiled by ignorance. To, cre to make a theology, to make a system, you need to be a bit ignorant of that. That wisdom expresses monism, non-dualism. Non-dualism or monism is difficult to live in the daily life or to explain or to teach or to create a system. And that's why you create a system which is a bit lower, which is called dualism, in which there is heaven and hell, virtue and sin. And that, that is a form of ignorance. He says, thereby the creatures, the beings are deluded. Like the creatures and beings believe that God cares about heaven and hell. God doesn't care about heaven and hell because in the eyes of God, everything is one. Either you are in paradise or you are in hell. Either you suffer or you are in pleasure. For the divine consciousness, it's all one. That is difficult to understand. And again and again, Krishna sobers Arjuna. He simply tells Arjuna, you live in this dualistic story with merit and demerit and he tries to show to him here some values of a higher spirituality. And that is why 
These teachings are very precious. They are very important. Again, let's read this strophe. The Lord accepts neither the demerit nor even the merit of any being, of anyone. Knowledge is enveloped or veiled by ignorance. Wisdom is veiled by ignorance. Thereby, beings are deluded. People think, I do this. When I hold the Karma Yoga lecture like I did the other day, I'm telling to people, at least at the level of the normal world, have this teaching. Create good karma. Stop producing bad karma. That's the first thing which a spiritual person would try to do. There is a higher, me, there is a higher truth than that. And the higher truth is stop producing any karma, not only bad karma, because bad karma and good karma at a certain point are the same. They are just an attachment to the universe. And because of this, they prevent you from reaching wisdom from reaching the total freedom. But there are, these are layers of understanding. Great, great teachers on this planet, they accepted the cohabitation, the coexistence of dualistic and non-dualistic spiritualities simply for the fact that the non-dualistic spirituality is taught to elites, to a very small number of people, can you teach non-dualism? Ramakrishna taught non-dualistic teachings to maybe 10, 20 people, and he taught dualistic, Hinduistic devotion to thousands and tens of thousands of people. That's the proportion. The proportion is, therefore, that, yes, there is a higher wisdom, and that wisdom is veiled by ignorance so that people see duality instead of seeing oneness. But, he continues in the strophe 16, to those whose ignorance is destroyed by the knowledge of the self, like the sun, knowledge reveals the supreme, knowledge reveals Brahman, he uses the word here indirectly, Knowledge illumines that which is transcendent. Tat param, he uses here, that which is para. Para in Sanskrit means supreme, beyond, like paramatman, the supreme atman. Tat means that, tat param, that which is supreme, he means that fin final wisdom. He just said in number 15, Wisdom is veiled by ignorance, thereby creatures are deluded. And now he continues, But in those in whom that ignorance is destroyed by wisdom, is destroyed by the knowledge of the self, by self-realization, wisdom then, like the sun, a wonderful comparison, illumines that which is transcendent. It compares the wisdom, the divine wisdom, with the sun. It's one of the comparisons which I liked a lot in my spiritual life because it defines spirituality, the awakening, exactly like the sunrise. When the sun rises, the darkness dispels. The ego, which may have a function in the darkness, because if you are in total darkness, you light a torch or you light a candle, 
and that candle is the ego, a caricatural sun, a mini sun, a pathetic copy of the sun, and that's what we help with ourselves as long as we are not enlightened, that we have a personality to keep us together, because if we don't even have a personality, then we fall into multiple personality, personality disorders, and then we are schizophrenic and severely handicapped mentally. So a personality is better than no personality, but above personality there is the sun, the sun of enlightenment in which the candle becomes useless. Go tomorrow at midday with a candle in your hand and see what's the value of that candle. Nothing. Doesn't even project a shadow or anything. It's nothing. In full sunshine, a candle becomes nothing. It becomes insignificant. That is why this analogy I like to use a lot because in the tantric discipline we emphasize on the sun not on blowing off the candle. Some people say if you blow off the candle you will see the stars and the stars are like the sun or something like this. Kill your ego and see the stars which are the sun or something like that. The analogy is not completely perfect and logical at this point. But the tantric tradition says bring up the sun, reveal the spiritual nature. It says when the ignorance is destroyed by knowledge of the self, the knowledge of the self then like the sun reveals the transcendent. He said time and again, all this ignorance that you are attached to action and that you are the author of action and there must be karma, this is not coming from the divine spirit. It's one of the actions of nature. It's a kanchuka. It's an armor. It's just a layer of nature. It's one of the layers of maya. It's one of the veils of maya. And it simply creates this illusion. But actually the divine consciousness doesn't want you to be submitted to that illusion. You are given a test run so that you can come out of those layers of illusion. And that's why... He says, the divine consciousness doesn't even care about the merit or demerit. Milarepa, what did matter that Milarepa killed 35 people? Do you really think that Milarepa had to die 35 times to pay for 35 murders? But he didn't. In the moment when Milarepa reached to enlightenment, all his karma became obsolete. It became burned out in a fraction of a second. Everything gets cancelled when it meets with a void. It's exactly like God is like a black star, like a, one of these black holes. It sucks everything and you never see it back. Merit and demerit. If you reach the Samadhi with a lot of good karma or with a lot of bad karma, it won't make any difference. The difference is only what happens to you before you have reached that state of Samadhi. But when you reach Samadhi, what does God care that you throw in a black hole three protons or three electrons, three plus charges or three minus? Makes no difference to a neutronic, to a, to a black star, to a black hole. It swallows everything forever. That is exactly in the same way the, for the divine consciousness which is above polarity, there is not even virtue and vice. God doesn't care if you are coming with positive or negative karma. God cares that you come. 
that you reach, reach awareness, wake up, realize the self. That's the thing which is wished. If until you realize the self, you are very helpful or not so helpful, in the moment when you realize the, help, the self, it will have no meaning anymore anyway. Only the people who are deluded, they say how nice Ramana Maharishi was. He was a kind person. But you know, Ramana Maharishi couldn't care less if he was kind or not kind. That doesn't matter at the level of Atman. That is why many people say, so Swami, won't this lead to some chaos? That's why your teacher teaches you yama and niyama before you reach enlightenment, so you don't create negative karma, so you create positive karma, so you create positive samskaras. And even after you reach to samadhi, although it won't matter anymore, out of habit, you keep on being a moral and ethical person. Realize, the morality does not matter anymore once you cross that line. Because nothing matters in a unified universe. But that's why Yama and Niyama, Yoga, the teachings of the spiritual beings, they are like a scaffold. You build your spirituality on that scaffold and then you find yourself on the roof. On the roof of your being. When you are on the roof, what's the scaffold? The scaffold doesn't matter anymore. You dropped it. But some people say, wait, 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 wait. Don't burn it. Don't destroy it. I can use this scaffold whenever I want to go down. Or I can use this scaffold to bring some people up. That is why the scaffold is useful. Yoga is useful. Yoga is an instrument. After you have reached enlightenment, what's the value of yoga? Nothing. In the beautiful documentary, The Message of the Tibetans, Arnaud de Jardin presents two great lamas who are both supposed to be quite enlightened practitioners and they meet and they laugh and they give each other some small gifts. Tibetans who ran away from Tibet and now they are living in India or in Ladakh or Sikkim, wherever they are living. And he says, what do two great yogis talk about when they meet with each other, maybe first time in their lives? And then he smiles and he says, Everything but yoga. Like, they don't talk about yoga. They talk about all sorts of other things. And it's not because they are bored of yoga and they say, oh, I met with another Swami. Let's talk about black gammon. Let's talk about going to the movies. It's not because spirituality is not relevant. But for them, spirituality is not relevant. The scaffold has no function. The scaffold has a function for others. And that's why the yogis venerated yoga, but they realized this is a system which has its value while it lasts. That's why, of course, we teach the yama and niyama. Because if you become an enlightened being that has not be, been taught yama and niyama, then you become, as I said so often, you become like people who reach fast enlightenment and who become very split. Angel and demon, Mr. Jekyll and Dr. Hyde, because you did not have time to build a scaffold, and then some things are not integrated in you. Then you get to that thing which was asked of me the other day, 
what about crazy wisdom? That you are a bit crazy and you do a lot of forbidden things. And while all spiritual people have pushed the envelope on some things to show to people their limitations and the caricatural dimension of limited existence, nevertheless, they have stayed within the boundaries of a certain morality and ethics, precisely because otherwise you get to chaos. It is very difficult for some people to understand this until you've seen the other side of reality. But believe me that from where I am talking to you, it is very clearly why a solid system of spiritual education and practice, such as yoga, with all that Patanjali and the founding fathers put into it, which is building a gradual ascension of the consciousness, it is fundamental. It is ensuring a smooth transition to the levels of enlightenment and a way of dealing with it afterwards, which is not as easy as some people think. And again, therefore, by to those in whom this ignorance which of duality is destroyed by wisdom, then wisdom, like the sun, illumines that which is transcendent, that which is transcendent being Purusha, Atman, the Supreme Self. Here Krishna presents some great ideals. Again, he comes up with high-level metaphysics. And Krishna, I admire enormously what he does because some people will say, uh, the fact that you say that the person who does this is uh, forever free and the person who does, like, we knew this already, like, is, Krishna is wasting the paper by just writing those things because those are what is called in elementary logics, truisms. There is a concept which is called truism. And truism means like you are just saying obvious things, common sense, obvious things, which everybody knows, and you are dealing like those are great truths. Sometimes there are in modern days authors who write in this new age subculture spiritual books, and their spiritual books are extremely diluted. Those people speak for 20 pages, and when you stop after 20 pages, it's like all the pages were gray. There is not a pearl shining on any of those 20 pages. They didn't give me anything practical. They didn't give me anything. That they just keep announcing truisms. People talk, they tell me what I want to hear. They tell me common things, sense things. And it's like, why am I reading this book? I could have written this book. There are many so-called spiritual books today which give you no breakthrough. There is no spark. There is no genius. It's, everything is flat because people talk in truisms. And you say, yeah, right. Oh, I fully accept what this author does. Sure, you fully accept, but there is nothing to shake you out of your stupor. There is nothing to bring a breakthrough through it because you hear what you already knew. Krishna here seems to be going in truism. Like some people say, isn't this known ever since the world? Isn't this a yoga? But don't forget, this text is presumably, scholarly presumably, older than most of the texts of Indian spirituality. This text is not 
copying the Yoga Sutra. The Yoga Sutra is copying this. This is much older. And in a text like this, Krishna ob is obliged to set the standards. Like somebody would say, Krishna, you gave some things and you say, like you'll see later, breathe through your third eye, do this and do that. Sure, what's the, but what do you promise? What's at the end of this tunnel? Where do we go? That's why Krishna constantly speaks about the great ideals. Krishna is luring you. Krishna is setting the standards. And because Krishna is considered in India to be an avatar, which means a divine incarnation, a part of God's consciousness incarnated under a human body on earth for a mission of transforming history, because that's what avatars are, the finger of God poked into the world, then Krishna has to make a promise. It is exactly as when Jesus says, Seek and you shall find. Ask and it shall be given to you. Knock and the door shall be open. And people say, right, you know, was it really necessary to waste paper with that? In how many Bibles have been printed in this world? If you would clip that paragraph out and make the Bible a bit shorter, you could have said a thousand trees by now, just by clipping those words from Jesus. Like, seek and you shall find. Right, if we zoom back the camera and we look like I didn't find in this life, maybe I'll find in the next life, maybe I'll find in 5,000 lifetimes. It's a truism. It seems to be a truism. But it is not a truism. When Jesus says, seek, and you shall find, Jesus promises. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Seek and you shall find. Like, that's my promise. You can come and hold me accountable for it if it's not so. I cannot tell you bullshit. I can only tell you the way it is. And if I, who claim to be God, if I, Jesus, say, I and my Father are one and the same, and then I say, seek and you shall find, it's a promise. It's a word which cannot be taken back. In the same way Krishna in his own time and in his own context, he makes a promise. He simply says, these are the standards. The one that is detached and this and that experiences happiness, experiences eternal peace, experiences freedom. It's a promise. Because before Krishna or without Krishna, people would say, yeah, but maybe it's not always like this. Yeah, but maybe it's not the case forever. Yeah, but maybe in the 21st century it doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, but there is no yeah, but. There is the divine consciousness speaking through the mouth of Krishna and saying, when you do this, you get that. If you don't do this, you are deluded and you don't find that. It's clearly announced and Krishna has to set the standard. People ask Jesus, why don't you allow all those jerks which exist inevitably in a society and therefore in our society, why don't you allow them to be? And Jesus says, maybe it was until now. Now I came to the earth, now the black will be separated from the white. Everybody has to make a choice. You are with me or you are not with me. People say, oh, but you know, I semi. Jesus doesn't accept semi. 
He says, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters, wastes. It's take it or leave it. Jesus says, today, the black and the dark get separated. Step to the left or step to the right. Choose. There is no, he cannot leave it ambiguously. There is no ambiguity at the level where Jesus comes from. Things are what they are supposed to be. And therefore, that is the message here. Krishna is doing a great job enlightening Arjuna and enlightening us in the respect of this because Krishna is ultimately setting very clear goals, very clear targets and archetypes, and Krishna is making promises and saying this is how the things are. Guide yourselves by those principles. Let us now remain for a few minutes in silent meditation to let the deep, profound teachings of Krishna settle down in our minds through the peace of meditation. And then we stop our discourse, our satsang of tonight. And that will do. With this we stop.